love for you to take God's word and turn to Matthew chapter 23 for me. Matthew chapter number 23. Today's sermon will be a little bit different than what I generally do. As we approach the text of Mark chapter 13, you'll find the same account in Matthew chapter 24. Um, I was really hoping we'd have full attendance today because the sermon today will set the pace for the next few weeks, but um, they'll just have to catch up, I suppose. If you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it, and we'll take our initial reading up in Matthew chapter number 23 and verse number 30. You read these words. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing." See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and the end of the age. And Jesus answered and said to them, and we're going to end the reading there, let's pray. Father, we love and praise you and thank you just for the privilege it is to pray. Father, we know what had to be accomplished for this to even be a possibility for us to approach the unapproachable. Otherwise, Father, we would be totally consumed. So we praise you, Father, for your Son and all that he's accomplished on our behalf so that we could have sweet moments like this where we could come to you, Father, and just ask for help. And that's why I'm here. I'm here just to ask you for help, Lord. I need you in the moment. These people need you in the moment, Father. We need your son. We need more of him. We need the power of your spirit. We need all of it. Father, we are weak and feeble. We're not just weak and feeble, Father, in and of ourselves. We are dead men without you. Unable, Lord, to accomplish anything with our own strength. Just just robots. Um, Father, being moved, parts, mechanic. Just religion. Father, that's not pleasing to your sight. So, Lord, we need you to 
come to us now to meet with us in the text. Lord, we need you to empower the preaching of your word, Father. We need you to take the scriptures to the depths of our heart. We need you, Lord, to make the blind see. We need you to make the deaf hear. We need you, Father, to, to make the lame walk. Lord, we need you to have an understanding of the things that are before us. Father, and I need you to help me to be faithful. God, um, I feel extremely weak this morning. I feel distant. I feel apart from you. Father, I, I need you to go with me. I need you to be here. Father, and I trust that you are. I cling to promises like in Matthew chapter 28 when you say that you'll go with us always, even to the end of the age, Father. Um, I, I cling to the promises like you will never leave us nor forsake us. Father, I cling to the promise that you'll be with us in the preaching. I, I cling to the promise that you'll be with us in the, bread, in the bread and the cup, in the midst of the fellowship of the people, Father. So, so this morning, would you make yourself known, Father, not only to the congregation, but to me. Um, Father, we um, just desperately need to know you in a deeper fashion this morning, God. Would you help me not to um, entertain, just, um, but to be faithful and preach the word? Father, would, um, would you use us this morning, Father, as instruments of your glory? Would you give us a few minutes to where we can just stay our minds on you? Father, your son is worthy this morning to be worshipped. Would you enable us to do that, Father? Give us the faith to believe and give us your presence, Father, to provoke us to worship. As we go to your text now, Father, we commend this time to you because of your son and the power of your spirit, Lord. Um, we leave these things in your hands. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. It may be somewhat of an interest to you this morning that we've turned to the book of Matthew. As most of you know, we have been on a journey through the book of Mark. This week we will have breached Mark 13, verse number 1. In that gospel you read these words which are very similar to our Lord's words here in the book of Matthew. In Mark 13, 1, it says, Then as he went out to the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, what, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, At what, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled. And Jesus answering them began to say, and then that's where we ended with our text. It's in this passage that we begin to get into what is believed by many um, and referred to by many as the topic of eschatology, um, which is just a big fancy $2 word for saying the study of the last things. This is where you read in this passage of false Christs, false prophets, wars and rumors of wars. Um, the abomination of desolation, and so much more. Conversations about the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and the one world order will inevitably commence among us. Um, over the course of the ministry here, though, it may have interested you or alarmed you one, um, if it has at all, you haven't said anything. But this is a topic that really hasn't come up in my preaching much, if at all. Or at least you probably couldn't tell. You can generally tell a lot about a man by what he talks about, and sometimes you can tell more about a man by what he doesn't. And it wasn't or hasn't been that it's not important to me. It's actually that very reason, because it is important to me, that I haven't talked about it uh, much at all. 
Uh, my end times paradigm has been shifting over the years, to be honest, knowing that uh, one day I'll give an account to God for everything that I say up here. Um, I've kept somewhat quiet on things that I couldn't preach with confidence, with peace, or by uh, faith. So I haven't. That is until now. Uh, another reason that you haven't heard me harp on it either is that I don't believe that it's an essential hill to die upon. Do I think it's important? Yes. Do I think it's essential? Yes. In the sense that you should believe in a visible return of Christ. But no, not in the sense that all of the trappings and the events that surround it, um, that, that contingent upon what you believe about that, that your salvation will hang and rest on that, that doctrine. Um, in the past uh, couple of weeks, I've had several people come to me and ask the question, does the church have a, a, um, a position on eschatology or the doctrine of last things? And the answer is yes, we do. Um, you can find it on our website. You can find it in our statement of faith. You can Google the 1689 Confession of Faith in the very last chapter, um, actually the last two, um, deal with the important matter of eschatology or the study of last things. Um, if you want a, a hard copy, I have plenty of those to hand out, and you can check out our position on the end times and the second coming of Christ. What you'll find, though, is that it's pretty general. It basically says, and I'm, 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 I'm uh, para paraphrasing here, Jesus is coming, and on that day he'll judge the living and the dead. Why did they conclude with such a general statement? As did the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists of the day who fashioned those statements of faith? Because these are difficult things to understand. And this is one of those areas in which faithful men have disagreed um, since the, the New Testament church yet they still labor in the gospel together. That was true of those who devised the confession um, 400 years ago. That was true of the early church fathers, and that's still true today. One of the things that I truly appreciated um, as I was reforming years ago um, and my narrow-minded fundamentalism was broadening widely um, as I saw um, a group of men sitting upon a stage or standing behind the same pulpit, uh, men like MacArthur, Vody Bauckham, R.C. Sproul, who stood behind the same pulpits, preached the same gospel, sat upon the same stage and engaged in question and answers about the ministry, um, linking arms for the gospel's sake, reaching the world with that very same gospel. And, that may, and to say that may seem strange to you because you know all those men and you wonder what's so odd about that. But in my narrow-minded fundamentalism years ago, as I looked at a stage like that, in circles that I ran in, those men should have been at, at each other's throats. Um, they would have been deemed liberal, some of them, um, because of, not, not just because of what they believed about the doctrines of grace or about um, salvation, but because of what they believed about the end of times. It's interesting to note that MacArthur was a premillennialist. Bauckham is an all-millennialist, and Sproul was a post-millennialist. You say, I don't have a clue what any of that means. That's fine. Uh, the, that's not the point. The point is, is that they differed. On the end times. That's not the, the point is not to define all of those definitions, but to, but to say that all three of those men were drastically different um, in what they believed would happen at the end. All agreeing that Christ would return, but the trappings of the environment or surrounding that, every one of them um, believed that it was important and it would even fight over it. Yet at the same time, they still labored together um, in the gospel faithfully to reach the world for the cause of Christ. 
And it is my hope that that spirit continues to be maintained with the men like that. And my hope is, is that the spirit, um, that spirit also continues to thrive um, in this church. Because I'm probably going to give you some things today and over the next few weeks that you've never heard or may shock you and, um, and may be somewhat different of a perspective than um, you've ever heard. So I pray that you'll listen and that you will um, be attentive, that you will um, not crucify me when I'm done, um, but understand that it is my great hope and desire to honor Christ behind this pulpit and, um, and pray for me that I will labor to do that for his name's sake. I'm going to attempt to persuade you, um, but at the end of the day, I understand that many of you won't be because of your biblical convictions, and I praise God for that. So you continue on. But I do pray that at the end of it, you will understand my position, and you will be able to defend your position from a biblical perspective. Not just locked into presuppositions or things that you've always known or just, just traditions. And that goes on so many levels. We all come to the text with preconceived notions of what we've always believed or what someone told us. Um, I hope that you'll discard that. I hope you already have and have come to realize that if the Scripture teaches something, no matter how long I've been taught or uh, my favorite pastor preaches and teaches it, and let me tell you who my favorite pastor is, is, is John MacArthur, and this is something that I differ on him with. And that may alarm you too, and it alarms me. I mean, who is, I feel like the apostle, I feel like, I feel like the demons, you know, who said, uh, who said I, we know Paul and we know Jesus. Who are you? You know, um, we know Sproul and we know MacArthur and uh, we know great men like that. Who are you to disagree with such great men? But at the end of the day, um, we will have to agree to disagree. But I hope that we'll lay aside um, presuppositions, preconceived notions or things that we've always known simply because we were taught them and examine the word of God and be able to engage the word of God. And you may ask the question, why is it so difficult I ask myself the question all the time. Why are the end times so seemingly unclear? And I honestly don't think that they are. I don't think that they're all that difficult. I think we're difficult. <laughs> I believe that by nature we are prone to getting caught up in all the details and truly forget the purpose of prophetic passages. And I want to lay this out at the front so that we're, when we're going through, no matter what position that you fall upon, you'll still benefit from the passage. Because you understand that prophecy has never been given simply to satisfy the hunger of curiosity. Um, and I think, that, that, that let's get that straight from the very beginning. That we're going to give you some application at the front of this sermon. Um, so that as we're going through it, through the rest of the, the, the next two to three weeks, that, that you will have that at the forefront of your mind. So that at the end of it, that if we fall on different positions, it, God still works to accomplish the primary goal in us through prophetic passages. And you say, um, well, God doesn't, and I say, God doesn't simply tell us things or tell you things simply so that you'll know. He's not a petty magician predicting the future, and he's not even um, necessarily God here trying to convince you that he's God because he can predict, predict what's going to happen um, in the future. We fail to understand this so often, so we get lost in trying to decode the Bible. 
find out where we are on the prophetic timeline so that we can stock up on uh, things like canned goods, convert our houses to solar, or buy enough ammo to hold out until Jesus comes. That's not the point. That's not the point of Jesus telling us that he's going to come and even the events surrounding um, that great event. That's not why he told us anything about the future. The, The primary purpose of prophetic passages, get this, take notes, circle it, write it down, so that you will grow in the Lord as you read these passages, is that it's primarily ethical. It's essentially moral. No matter where you land on this text, whether it's past, present, or future, in your mind, it was given to us by our Lord, given to them by our Lord, that it would provoke us to holiness. That's it. As you study the New Testament particularly, but as well as the Old Testament, when the prophets and the apostles came, they preached of the Lord's first coming and they preached of the Lord's second coming. And what they desired to provoke in us was not um, a, a manner of charts and figuring out details so that we would know how to prepare when the Lord was coming. He simply wanted us to know that He was coming, that we would be prepared in, by by. by Um, fashioning our lives in holiness and in righteousness and godliness. And I'm I'm thinking about um, bringing each sermon over the next few weeks with a passage that that, that teaches us just that. For example, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 10. You read these words. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore... Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner, this is a question, what manner of persons ought you to be in holiness and in godliness? Looking for it and hastening the coming of the day of God. Verse number 13, Nevertheless, we according to the promise look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14, Peter goes on, Therefore, beloved, Looking forward to these things. What things? The the day of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. Be diligent, he says, to be found in Him in peace. Without spot and blameless. And consider that long-suffering of our Lord in salvation. As, As also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all epistles, speaking in them of thing of these things, in which are some things hard to understand which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of Scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away by the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Did you, under, did you get that? What are the implications? What does it mean for us that Christ is coming? Christ's known coming presence to His people and his, holy, and his promises to us should provoke in us a certain lifestyle, one with a holy conduct, one with godliness, one found to be diligent, one to be found in him in peace, without spot and blameless. And then he goes on to give it from a negative perspective, that it should urge us to faithfulness, not to be caught up, but to consider the long-suffering of our Lord in salvation as Paul taught. We're not to be like the untaught and unstable people who twist Paul's teaching and the rest of Scripture to their own end and their own destruction. Thus, we are to to heed this great warning to be faithful Christians, to beware, so that you and I don't fall from our own steadfastness by being led away by the error of the wicked, but we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. 
Do you see all of the moral imperatives? That it's not necessarily about the things that are happening around the coming, but to know that He is coming. And that when He comes, He will judge the quick and the dead. Thus, church, prepare yourselves. Prepare as a bride. Ephesians chapter number 5. As a bride being adorned for her husband. Christ saved us for that very purpose. Titus 2 is very reminiscent. Titus 2.13 says, Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us. This is our great privilege to look to Christ and to anticipate His coming in second Tim, or in Titus chapter 2 and verse number 13. I made a post some time ago, some time ago on, uh, in social media, Facebook, and I quoted, or I, I, and it was about the day, it was about the hour, and how we're looking about all the details, and the reality is, is, that, is that really what's happening all around us, it, judgment should begin here, and we, there should be a self-examination of our heart. You know, and then randomly, a random guy gets on and, and hunts me down for some reason and, and posts something on, my, uh, on there and says, nah, I'm done with my wickedness and I'm done with uh, the wickedness of the world. I'm just waiting for Jesus. And he quoted Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope. Um, and it seemed that he had some type of hunker down and hermit mentality, that he was done with himself and done with the world and he just cast it off and he's waiting for Jesus. And that's easy to do to come up with a mentality like that whenever you rip Scripture out of context. Um, but what he didn't know was that in verse number, that prior to that very verse, Paul goes into the life within the church and the responsibilities that we have to one another. In Titus 2, he goes on about older men teaching younger men and older women teaching younger women in the life of the church, exhorting bondservants. And then he gives the reason why. So that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things, he says. That's why. Not to merely attain a theoretical or abstract knowledge of our, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but that you and I may live. That's why. And live obediently, putting on the doctrine of God. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age. Looking for that, then looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Why, Paul? That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, he says, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one despise you. Paul says that the grace of God in salvation has appeared to all men. And as we look to him, it accomplishes something in us because Jesus Christ died not just to save you for all eternity, but to redeem you from lawless deeds here and now. That you may adorn the doctrine of God and pass that on men to younger men and pass that on women to younger women and pass that on to servants and all those around us. That the gospel accomplishes a quality of life, just not a chronology of life. That we have the divine life that is, in, that is given to us by His righteous deeds and the work that He accomplished on our behalf. And we are to live, brethren, in this time and now. That if your eschatology, whether it's pre, post, ah, pre-trib, post-trib, whatever, 
You know, if it, if it leads you to an apathy and an indifference and a lethargy in relationship to this world, it is, it is, it is a different gospel or a different mentality of what the gospel came to accomplish on our behalf. The, 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 the ideal is, is that Jesus entered into time and reality for a purpose to buy himself and redeem himself a people from the world to bring to himself that they might live not only in eternity for him in utter perfection, but to be purified now. And one of the means that God gives us to provoke that holiness is to tell us that He is going to return. That there is going to be a day in which the living and the dead will be raised. And, they will, and He will judge every thought, action, deed, and intent of the heart. Thus, be holy. Be ye holy, Peter says, as I am holy. So if your eschatology or your teaching on the last things does not provoke in you that end, then we don't understand eschatology. We don't understand the second coming of Christ. Thus, we need to rethink not just the trappings of what we believe about the end, but what we believe about Christ and the gospel and what He's seeking to accomplish in us. And I could give you more passages, but I think I'm going to save them for future days to continue to remind us that regardless of where we fall in this um, chapter in Matthew 23, 24, 25, and many other places, that primarily, essentially, this is what God desires and designed um, the second coming for, or at least to teach us about it, to provoke in us a lively faith that, would, that we would engage the world, that we would preach the gospel, that we would disciple the nations, that we would go to the ends of the earth, that we would take up arms and we would battle until the day that we see Him face to face and we'll be like Him. And if, this, if the coming of Christ doesn't provoke that in us, then we need to reevaluate our eschatology and what we believe about that great and glorious day. And listen, Matthew 23, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, that's the point of this passage as well. It's ethical. But it's also almost impossible to see that by simply reading Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. And read them in a vacuum from a 21st century Western mindset, divorced from the Old Testament, and divorced from the rest of the book of Matthew. Um, it's easy to get lost in all of the details of what's happening here and lose the context, not only of it being born in a book and progressively things leading up to it, but also it, it be, we must remember that it is part of a greater story. That it is part of the story of God. That, that through His providence and through His supernatural workings, He's bringing the climax of human history to this point. We're in Passion Week. And as we study this morning in Sunday school about the life of Joseph and just the providential hand of God working through that, that, that He may save much people alive. Even utilizing bad things, but working them all together for good. You see an even greater um, than Joseph here as in Christ as he utilizes the worst that the enemy has to devise to bring about the greatest salvation and the greatest work I mean, all of human history in which we just talked about. So what I'm going to do this morning 
It's trying to bring us up to speed with an introductory message that will set the pace for the interpretation that I'm going to give you over the next few weeks. Again, it's going to be a little different. It's going to be almost all introduction before we actually get to the text, and I hope that you'll afford me that liberty because we will get into the text um, explicitly next week. But what I want to do is I want to, I want to show you that Matthew 24 <laughs> is not born in a vacuum, that the events here did not just drop out of the sky, that they're born out of Old Testament prophecy and messianic expectation. So to understand the text, we have to read the Old Testament. We have to read the entire book of Matthew. We need to know on, on, a, on a higher scale the big story, the big picture. If you're taking notes today, I may encourage you to put down your pen and just try to get the big picture. You can listen to the recording later. I'll give you all of the notes. But we're going to cover a lot of ground today. And I just want you to see big picture of what God was accomplishing and how these events came to pass. That the ethical implications, if this is moral, and the reason that this is given is ethical, then what is Christ attempting to accomplish by means of this prophecy? I'm going to tell you. The ethical implications of this text are simply to repent and believe. Who's the target audience, though? I'm going to argue the Jews, the nation of Israel, New Testament Israel. That this prophecy was given so that they would know the judgment that was to come upon them. This judgment was prophesied in the Old Testament by the prophets. But also in the books of Moses. Where a covenant that God made with them is laid out. In Deuteronomy 28 and in Leviticus chapter 26. You see both the blessings upon obedience. And you see both the cursings upon disobedience. I'm going to argue that in Matthew 24 verses 1 through 3. The disciples make a statement concerning the temple. Jesus says that it's going to be demolished. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. It provokes a question in the disciples. When will these things be? I'm going to argue that verses 4 through 35 is Christ's answer to that question. When will these things be? Which speaks of the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. I believe the context demands it. I believe that's the question being asked. I believe that you can see this as prophesied in the Old Testament. I believe this is one primary theme in the book of Matthew that has been progressively growing, the judgment upon Israel, and finds its culmination here in Matthew 23 through 25. As Jesus leaves the temple and pronounces judgment upon it, the nation of Israel receives... Um, Three, approximately three to four decades later, the covenant curse is promised to them under the old covenant. And in correlation with that, the judgment is finalized as the new covenant is inaugurated and the old covenant becomes, as Hebrew says, obsolete. Thus the kingdom is taken from Israel, um, as the scriptures teach in the New Testament, and given to a nation that will bear fruit. First um, Peter teaches us that that holy nation is the the church. So let's put Matthew 24 in its context. If you were to go to the beginning of the book of Matthew, and I don't have time, I really want about a week with you right now. <laughs> um, so I hope that you'll afford me some liberty over the next few weeks not to talk about everything. And I'm happy to engage afterwards and ask, answer all of your questions, but they may be answered in the coming weeks. We just don't have time this morning to do it all. 
Um, I'm going to try to finish by 12 so we can take the Lord's Supper. So I have about 30 minutes to give you a, a broad overview. Um, and again, this is different. This is actually not what I kind of like to do, but I think it's so necessary. And that's why we come to the book of Matthew. We say, why didn't you preach out of the book of Mark? Because Matthew gives us the most extensive account. It gives us context that I think is important. Um, so to preach something I've never preached before and something that many of you are probably new to, we need to give the most extensive um, account to it. Um, so I hope you'll afford me the liberty of, of doing that. But when you study the, the, the book of Matthew, what you study is um, a progression in Matthew's gospel of coming judgment. Uh, Matthew is probably the most Jewish of all gospels. There's no disputing that. Um, you say you may have heard many times that the audience of the book of Matthew is the Jews and you know Mark is the Gentiles. And the way that people come to that conclusion is just through the study of Matthew. Matthew, there are more Old Testament allusions, more Old Testament quotes. There's customs that only the Jewish people would have known. Um, there are, are fulfillment of prophecies and motifs that only um, the, the, the nation of Israel would have known. You don't find in places like Mark and, and many of them even in, in Luke. Um, you begin and you open with Matthew in a unique way with a genealogy that traces the nation of Israel or the Christ lineage through the nation of Israel. It's different from the other Gospels. He, he, he traces Christ back to David, um, which a covenant was made with him. And then he traces it back to Abraham, which is the father of the faith of the Hebrews. Um, it's really where the nation of Israel is born out of. And Jacob, um, later on, his, his lineage. Um, this is, so, so, so Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Um, Mark and, and John don't even include a genealogy. Um, and what you see is just this, this, this um, idea that the, nation of, or that, that the book of Matthew is primarily to Jewish people. But not only that, it's almost to the point too to where it seems almost anti-Semitic. Um, and what I mean by that is anti-Jewish. For example, uh, many commentators have actually come to that conclusion. Why? Because of all of the, the, the negative aspects and that are spoken of by the nation of Israel. Um, one commentator says, for example, but it is Matthew's polemic, is, or his argument is so harsh that he must be considered anti-Semitic or against the Jews. Um, another writer writes, one of, of the frequent observed paradoxes in Matthew is that this gospel, which at one level can rightly be seen as the most Jewish one, is at another level, uh, another level the most severely anti-Jewish. One man actually argues as well that Christ's vitriolic words aren't Christ's words at all, but Matthew's. Um, does that mean that Matthew is anti-Semitic? And the answer is no. That Matthew is himself a Jew. Not only that, these aren't the words of Matthew, if you believe in the inspired word of God. Most of the, the issue that people have with are, are actually Jesus' word to the Jewish people. And his constant judgment language against them. Nor is Matthew's purpose to show the wholesale permanent rejection of Israel by God. Maybe that's what's going through your mind now. What do I think about Israel in the last or the end of the age? It is my current opinion that Romans 11 teaches that God will graciously call her back to himself before history culminates. But it may not be the way that most people think. Um, and we can talk about that afterwards. So this isn't anti-Semitic and this isn't being um, you know, anti-Jewish. What we see throughout Matthew's gospel, though, is constant judgment language. Matthew warns over and over of Israel's demise and culminates here in our text as the Lord gives the last word on Israel. So in preparing for a study on it, um, I think it's important to begin at the beginning of Matthew. Again, it's extremely Jewish, and I'm just going to give you the text, Matthew 2.15. Um, it speaks of an Old Testament prophecy that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
Again, the only place that you find it in the Gospels. Why? Because only the Jews would have understood. But it's interesting because it's a, it's a, it's a prophecy that's fulfilled um, not only historically, but also in Christ. If you go to Hosea 11, you'll find that the, 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 the story or the, the prophecy is actually about um, Israel. And it was historically um, came to pass in the nation of Israel. But here we find in, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, that it's actually fulfilled in Christ. As he is taken out of Egypt and they run from Herod and it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Speaking of Jesus as the true Israel. Um, Matthew 3, we move quickly. Matthew skips to John the Baptist. What's he doing? Immediately in Matthew 3, verse 1 and 2, what do you see? You see John the Baptist preaching. What's he preaching? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Um, who's he preaching to? The nation of Israel, the leaders. They come and they want to be baptized. What does he refer to them as? As a brood of vipers. Despite their claim, we're the children of Abraham. We are the chosen people. John sees them coming for baptism. And he says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What wrath? What wrath? Final judgment or the second returning Christ? I would argue that maybe not. Maybe he's talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. John goes on to say that the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says in verse 10, his winnowing fork is in his hand already. Matthew chapter 3 and verse number um, 12. If you were to go back to Malachi, just a few pages back, the very last book of the Old Testament, you'll see the prophecy of John the Baptist coming in Malachi 3 and 4. I'd encourage you to go read the entirety of those passages. But in chapter 3 and verse number 1, you read, Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. Who's that? John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Did we see that? We saw that, right? The Lord came to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, the old covenant, the new covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of the hosts. Then he goes on to say, but who can endure the day of his coming? What coming? The coming of the Lord. I think it's the same coming. Who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of, the, of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. Chapter 4 and verse number 1, you read this. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, and all who do wickedly will, will, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall be burned up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. This is after that. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. I'm going to argue that as salvation is coming, so is judgment as at the coming of the Lord. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any distinguishment between Malachi there. Um, that, that when he comes, he's going to come and, and, and save, but he's also going to come and bring judgment. And he says he's going to go to the root. What is, what is John the Baptist preaching here? That the axe is already laid at the root. At the root of what? At the root, at the root of the old covenant. 
uh, the, all of it in all of its trappings and all of its sacrifice and all of its religious regalia. It's, um, it's, it's failing to accomplish salvation. Thus, it is coming to an end. Judgment is going to come upon it. It's going to meet its culmination in the destruction of the temple as well as initially in the renting or the, the ripping of, of the veil. Moving on in Matthew, you see judgment coming in statements like um, the, in the Gentiles' faith. Remember that? Romans and Trium, not seen the faith like this at all. Um, not even in Israel, he goes on to say. There's never been a faith like this. Um, in Matthew 11, and frustrated with their lack of response to repentance, Christ compares the nation of Israel with pagan cities of old as being worse. He says in uh, verse 16, But to what shall I compare this generation? That, that phrase is important. This generation. It's like the children sitting in the marketplaces who call out, and, and he's going to argue that they're disobedience or disobedient. They don't, they don't listen. He goes on to say, For John came neither eating or drinking or saying he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. What they're doing is they're calling John and Christ sinful men, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by our deeds, he says. And then he began to reproach the cities in which most of the miracles were done because they would not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, who? To this generation, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Who's he talking to? Cities. Where and when are cities judged? Will the nation of America be judged on that last and great day? No, nations are judged in time and in reality. Sodom was judged in time and reality. And the nation of Israel will be judged because of the rebellion. And he says it will be worse for you than it was for Sodom. That's the idea. In uh, chapter 13, he goes on and he speaks of Isaiah's prophecy that they were hardened. He fulfilled it. They were, they were, um, he speaks of them being an evil and an adulterous generation, a wicked generation, a faithless and a perverse generation. And I think by now you, you probably get the point. If you were to go to Matthew 21, I think this is very important out of all of this. Matthew 21, we see parables that we didn't see in the book of Mark. You remember Matthew 21 begins with that great um, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, um, which, which then um, culminates in the flipping of the temple, and our Lord enters into the temple, and he's preaching and teaching. We just finished that up a few weeks ago. Questions are asked, and parables are given. I want to give you a few more parables, a couple of which um, we did not get. But you may remember the parable in, in 21 of the fig tree, right? You remember the leaves were there, but what did he not find? He did not find fruit. On the trees. Thus he pronounced judgment upon the tree that it would bear no more fruit. That was the idea of the parable of the fig tree. He goes on in chapter 21 and verse number 28 and he gives a parable of two sons. Read this. But what do you think, a man who had two sons? And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second, and likewise, he said, and he said, I, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, 
The first, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that tax collectors and harlots enter into the kingdom of God before you. Who's he talking to? That generation. To the nation of Israel. He's saying that, that, that I called my servants. They continue to disobey, so I call other servants. Um, and the ones who repent are the ones who are, are mine. Verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward repent and believe him. Verse 33, hear another parable of wicked vine dressers. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. This is, is reminiscent of Isaiah 5, speaking of Israel. Dug a wine press in it and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage times drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said to among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize the inheritance, or his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, and this is them answering now. It's not red letter if you have a red letter edition. Jesus asked them a question. What should, what should the landowner do to these vine dressers? So he says to them, so, so they answer, they come to the conclusion, he will destroy those wicked and men miserably. And they sign their own death warrant there um, and lease his vineyard to another vine dresser or other vine dressers who will render to him fruits in their seasons. Again, reminiscent of the vine, right, or the, the fig tree. I'm coming, he comes, he sees, he sees leaves on, it should produce fruit. It doesn't, he, he, he lays it low to where it won't produce it again. This one, there are men who come, kill the laborers. The, the landowner owns it. They continue to reject. He sends his son. Surely they won't reject my son. They do. What should I do to these people? You should destroy them miserably. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? This indictment upon him. This is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in your eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived, they knew that he was speaking to them, of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him as a prophet. Chapter 22, the parable of the wedding feast, the same theme. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. This is Israel. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready to come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own business farm, or his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their cities. That's the idea. 
Let's go to Matthew chapter 23. And again, I, I hate doing this. It's more like a Bible study. I want to preach and proclaim the glorious nature of Christ. But if we don't lay the foundation, the next few weeks won't make sense at all. Matthew 23, the text that we read this morning. Matthew 23 begins after, after that great question. The last question that he answers that we've uh, spent time in Mark was what? What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? Ultimately, I believe it's the last question because it's a question about his messiahship. They came to the conclusion, they understood the, the, the question, but they, but they rejected and they refused to answer because they knew what logical conclusion that came to. How can he be David's son and be David's Lord? If I answer that the way that I know that I should, that means that I've got to submit to David's son as David's Lord, just like David did. So they reject the Messiah, even though knowing who the Messiah was. Knowing the Old Testament Scriptures, they rejected him. Thus, in 23, verse number 1, our Lord commences with seven woes against the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, and the Pharisees. And He pronounces judgment upon them. And it culminates in the text that we read this morning. I'll read you the last one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And what you see is a condemnation after condemnation that culminates in final judgment upon these people. You read our final conclusion of our Lord. Verse 29 and 30 says they're accused of what? Of hypocrisy. They took pride in the way that they honored the prophets. Um, and the prophets that were killed. That's the idea. Verse number 29. Because you build tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Parable after parable we've read. What's the indictment? You killed my servants. You killed my servants. You killed my son. The, the great indictment here is, is, and the hypocrisy comes in, is that you hold memorials for the prophets as if you wouldn't have done that had you been there. You're, you're, you're a liar and you're a hypocrite. That's what he's saying here. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourself, in verse 31, that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. He says, then, fill up, then, the measure of your father's guilt. This is the idea. And it culminates in verse 34. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things, the woes that I just pronounced, this condemnation, will come upon this generation. That's the idea. The idea is, is that they will complete the guilt of their fathers in full measure, ultimately by killing more prophets and killing the son. Condemnation will come upon that generation as they complete the measure of their father's guilt. He comments more on that again in verse 35 when he, when he speaks about um, them going on to kill and to crucify. The cumulative effect, one commentator writes, of the rejection of the murder of all God's spokesmen is graphically traced from Abel to Zechariah, who were the first and the last martyrs of the Old Testament. So that the choice of these two examples is doubly appropriate because each of those in 2 Chronicles as well as in Genesis 4, speaking of Abel and Zechariah, carry with them the vengeance of God. That's the idea. God will venge 
and vindicate the death of the prophets. Remember Revelation chapter 6, I believe, where they cry out under the martyrs, you know, when will you vindicate me? And he says a little while longer. That's the idea. God will vindicate the righteous blood that was shed through judgment. Not only that, if you were to go ahead to Matthew chapter 27, you would read an interesting account in verse number 15. This is the episode in which um, you remember that Christ is before the governor and there's another man there by the name of Barabbas, right? That oftentimes it was a custom to set one of those men free. They go throughout and they go back and forth and the governor time and time again, Pilate, can find no fault in this man. He's sinless. He's righteous. Right? Pilate said to them in verse number 22, because they keep requiring Jesus' blood, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said to him, let him be crucified. It's interesting there too, isn't it? You know, you go back to uh, Matthew chapter 23, and it says that some of you will, will um, scourge and crucify the prophets. But the Jewish people never crucified anyone. It was wrong. So how is that prophecy fulfilled? Here you find the Jewish people, the leaders of Israel, as well as the people, crying out for Jesus' blood, and they specifically say, let this man be crucified. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? In verse 23. But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was arising, He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Rome's not going to be responsible for the blood of this man. It's not on my head. I've tried and tried again to have nothing to do with this man. He's innocent. And he says, he washes his hands. And then all the people, get this, all the people answer and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. But Israel at that moment took upon themselves the blood of the Son of God. They continually kill the prophets throughout the ages. And they're hypocrites in saying that they would never do that. That that had we been there, we wouldn't have done that. But they will themselves fill up the guilt of their fathers and through that cumulative effect, it will culminate in the death of his son. And thus, judgment will be released in future days upon that generation. That the judgment that will be poured out upon them, who? Of chapter 23 says, upon them. Upon them. Assuredly, I say to you, verse 36, all these things will come on this generation. I mean, it's on not only the religious leaders, but it's on the nation. In that verse there, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who sent her, it's speaking of the city upon the people, the leaders. But later it turns plural. And it says to you, see that your house is left to you desolate. Because it wasn't just a, a, a sin of the religious leaders, it was also a sin of the people who said, crucify him, his blood be upon our hands. Wash it, Pilate. It's on us. We'll take it. And they do. Um, Some three and a half decades later, as you see one of the most horrific events in all of human history, as you read about a three and a half year war with the Jews, um, historian, Roman and Jewish historian, Flavius Josephus records in his volume on wars with the Jews, 
some of the most horrific things that you will ever read in your life. If you were to go to Deuteronomy chapter number 28, or uh, actually Leviticus chapter number 26, you would read of the cursings. See, this isn't just born out of the New Testament times. It wasn't just a few days and our Lord was upset with the nation of Israel. It's actually the, the, the blessing and the judgment that is to come is born out of a covenant that God had made with these people um, centuries before. In Leviticus chapter number 26, um, sorry, I have to, I have to, you have to sing the books of the Bible in your head. I do. I didn't learn them as a young boy. I had to go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Because uh, I can't do that and talk at the same time either. Um, in Leviticus chapter number six or 26, you find. Um, the, the relationship that you have with, uh, that God has with the nation of Israel. And I would encourage you to read all of it, but I want to read just a, a few verses to you beginning in verse number 14. He says, But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if my soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I will also do this to you. And again, I want you to go back and read the blessings, because the blessings are tremendous. Okay, I don't want to paint a completely negative picture. This was a good covenant. It wasn't a complete covenant. It wasn't a perfect covenant, but it was a good covenant. It was a moral covenant. It was a covenant that blessed the nation of Israel on so many accounts. But there's a negative sense to the old covenant. I will also do this to you, he says. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and the sorrow of the heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. You get that seven times? How many woes were in Matthew 23? Seven. I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride. And even in the book of Revelation, you see the same, same thing. You see seven bowls. You see seven um, plagues. You see seven... Uh, it's, 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 it's a term for judgment. It's covenantal. He says, I will break your pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength will be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of your land yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me or are not willing to obey me, I'll bring on you plagues, seven times more plagues, according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number. And your highways shall be desolate. And if, if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, do you get that? If these things don't reform you, what's the primary purpose in prophetic passages? It is ethical. He says, I'm coming. My presence will be among you in judgment. And if you don't repent, if you don't reform, if, you, if, 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 if these, by these things, if you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you. I will punish you yet seven times for your sins, and I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of my covenant. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered in the hand of your enemy. Does any of that sound familiar? When you read Matthew 24, this first portion, it speaks of famine, it speaks of pestilences, it speaks of, of, of some of the great horrors of being taken over by your enemy. The sword will be brought against you. Who did God give the, 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 um, the vengeance of the sword to? To the state, to the, to the nations. 
What happens in AD 70 is that Rome comes in and ransacks the nation of Israel and brings uh, and is, is the tool in God's hand to execute the vengeance of the covenant. Turn with me to Luke chapter number 21. In Luke chapter number 21, this is Luke's account of Matthew 24. And in verse number 20, you read these words. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that the desolation is near. Remember, your house is left to you desolate. The desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country um, enter her. Verse 22, for these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Deuteronomy, or in Leviticus chapter number 20, or 26, what did we just read? That the sword will be brought in the vengeance of the covenant. Verse 22, for these are the days of the vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. That's the idea. That in Matthew chapter number 23, it culminates in this Judgment language to where our Lord predicts um, that their house would be laid desolate. What house? When in, in 21, he refers and quotes the house of God being turned into a den of thieves. It's the temple. In 23, he refers to the dwelling place of God as the house. It's the temple. That the temple is going to be destroyed um, in the coming days. And that's exactly what they ask. For, uh, chapter 24, verse number 1, Then Jesus went out and departed. He leaves the temple. I encourage you to go look at Ezekiel 11, um, verses 22, 23, and 24 later. Um, you see, as the Lord talks about the new covenant there, in some form, small form, um, that he also refers to the glory of the temple leaving the temple, the glory of Yahweh leaving the temple, and going to the east to a mountain. When you study the nation of Israel and Jerusalem, what you find is that Jesus went out and departed from the temple. The glory of God left the temple. And this judgment is proclaimed upon them. He will not return. And his disciples came up to show him the building of the temple. Where is this at? The Mount of Olives. That's the mountain east. That's the mountain spoken of in Ezekiel. And he sits on the Mount of Olives and the disciples say and show him the temple. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably... Again, using my sanctified imagination. But you can imagine for a moment what's going through their mind when he says, your house is left to you desolate. I think that they understood what he was saying. And I think they understood the, the, great, um, the great tragedy or the great catastrophe. That, I think that they probably thought he was crazy. <laughs> Let me just say that. I think that Rome would have thought he's crazy. I think the religious leaders thought he was crazy. I think that the disciples probably thought that he was crazy. I think the disciples probably thought that he was crazy because this was the center of Jewish life. It would have been um, just such a cataclysmic event from Jewish life um, for the temple to be destroyed. It would have been almost impossible from a natural perspective because of the magnitude of the temple and the structure alone and the wealth that was within it that was built up over decades um, many writers, and we'll read those in coming days, compare this temple, and they say there was nothing comparable in wealth, in magnitude, and in might. The smallest of the stones weighed uh, three to five tons, the greatest 40 to 50 tons. I mean, it would have took an act of God to move this temple, and it did. It took an act of God years later to do that. So I think that they're coming out, and what's happening is this conversation. He just said, your house is left to you desolate, and they're saying, look, Lord, look how magnificent it is. Look how beautiful it is. Look how glorious it is. And Jesus said to them, 
Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. He's answering the question. He's, he's, this is a, a, a prophecy of the coming destruction of the temple. And now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. I am, I am privy to believe that, that given the context, given the context in Matthew, given the context in Mark, given the context in the whole of Scriptures and what we're working towards, not only here, but the bigger story. All right, What's going to happen? Jesus is going to come. The new covenant's going to be inaugurated. The glory is going to leave the temple. The temple's going to be destroyed. Why? Because the true temple has come. He's the chief cornerstone. That, 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 that there is judgment coming because of their disobedience and they would not repent. But it's also coming in time and history because a new covenant is coming. A covenant in Ezekiel 36 and in Jeremiah chapter 31 where the Lord literally says, I do this not for your sake, but for my sake. I do these things. Why? Because the old covenant is not sufficient. I'm paraphrasing that. It's not sufficient. It's not saving anyone. You keep breaking it. So I'm going to bring a new covenant. I'm going to bring a covenant that is that later we, we know is we're going to take the Lord's table here in just a few moments. It's the new covenant in my blood, Luke tells us, as he records Jesus administering the Last Supper. It is the new covenant in my blood which will be inaugurated. And that when the new covenant comes, the old Hebrew tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, Chapter 8, 9, and 10, that the old covenant is becoming obsolete. It is becoming null and void. Why? Because, because we have a better temple, guys. We have a better sacrifice. We have a better high priest. We have a better prophet than Moses. We have a greater than Aaron. We have a greater sacrifice, not one that needs to be sacrificed over and over and over again. We have Jesus Christ the righteous. You want to talk about rest on the Sabbath? We have your rest from all works. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's better. I think that's why in Hebrews chapter number 10, there's just such a great admonition and warning to the people. Those, those, those Jewish Christians who were born into the family of God very early on, having a difficult time leaving the trappings of Judaism. So the writer of Hebrews writes to teach them about the Christ, the Son of God, the, in the latter days, at the close of the, the old covenant age, that those things are passing away. Let those things go. And there were people who were coming, bringing still sacrifices. And he says, no, you know, there is no other sacrifice for sin other than Christ is the, is the summary of that. You know, that to bring another sacrifice is to trample under your, under, under your feet the blood of the covenant. To think that there's anything else that, that could come along and add to who Christ is. And he says that, 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 and the writer of Hebrews goes on throughout the entirety of the book to talk about the blood of bulls and goats and how they're insufficient. Yet the blood of Jesus Christ is able to save them to the uttermost that no other sacrifice is necessary. And that those things are passing away, he says. They're here. But ultimately, in Hebrews chapter number 12, uh, verse number 26 and verse number 27, um, if you want to look that up a little bit later, speaks of the old covenant in reference to the new covenant and vice versa. You get the context um, in the previous um, passage, starting in verse number 18. It says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, that was burned with fire. He's speaking about Mount Sinai in the first covenant. And to the blackness and the darkness and the tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. They could not endure that what was commanded. Talking about the Old Covenant. 
And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to the Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that, that speaks better than things than that of Abel. He's, he's contrasting the, 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 the superiority of the new covenant and how it transcends the old covenant and how it's going obsolete and how it was insufficient. And in verse 25 he says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn from him who speaks from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth? Whose voice shook the earth? God's did. When? At Mount Sinai. But now, literally... Um, he, 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 there was an earthquake at Mount Sinai. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. What's the things being shaken? Convinced it's the old covenant. And as the things that are made. What, the temple. It was made with hands. Um, which cannot be shaken that which, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. What are the things that can't be shaken? The things in the new covenant. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. That the old covenant was never um, intended to be permanent. It was always temporary. It was always provisionary. It was always preparatory of the coming of Christ. And that's why in the New Testament you find out that, that, that we are the people of God, that we are the temple of God, that Christ is the chief cornerstone, that the apostles are the, um, the, the foundation stones, and we are being built up upon Him. That's why Peter says that we are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We offer sacrifices that are pleasing unto God. It's all the same imagery. Therefore... Um, Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1, you know, present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God. You know, being transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know what the, uh, the, the perfect, acceptable will of God is. That, that, that Christ is the purpose of all Old Testament imagery. And just like in Matthew chapter 2, that seemed like an obscure fulfillment, right? <laughs> you know, that it was uh, in Hosea with Jesus coming out of Egypt. The prophecy literally had nothing to do with Jesus in the Old Testament seemingly. But Christ, but Matthew, according to the Spirit of God, applies it to Christ as the true Israel, um, who fulfills all that Israel, who does all that Israel could not do, just like he's the, the, the true Adam, who does everything that we could not do. That all of this is, 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 is rolling towards a, a, a purpose and a day in which Christ would come, and that the old covenant would become obsolete. And I'm convinced that over. Hebrews is arguing that, 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 that it was becoming obsolete and that on that great day of the Lord, which I don't believe in that portion of Scripture speaking about the second coming. I don't think they had an idea of the second coming. I mean, Christ, they didn't even believe Christ was going to die. You know, they didn't, they didn't know about a second coming. They weren't asking that. I think Jesus answers that and gives them some of that later. So, so know this, I believe in a second coming. I believe that it's actually in that text as well. I just don't believe that the first 35 verses are dealing with that particular um, event in time and history to culminate all of human history. I believe it's dealing with that. But the idea is, is that at the, at the 70 AD, um, similar 
You say, well, it's similar to um, in Matthew when our Lord gives up his life on the cross. You may remember an earthquake happened. What happened in the temple? The uh, veil was rent too, wasn't it? It was, a, it, was a, it was a true reality, a literal event that symbolized something greater. That under the old covenant, man was apart from God. And only once a year, a high priest could go in. Um, but at the renting of the veil and the crucifixion of Christ, it signified that now all men can come in. That there's no partition between God and man, that Christ is the mediator. Um, for 35 years or so after that, the Jewish nation continued to, re- to, to refuse to repent and relent. They would not reform Leviticus 26. So God turns his face against them and finally destroys um, in, a, in, a, in a formal way Old Covenant Judaism. Let me just say that even up to this day, um, sacrifices have never been reinstituted in a formal fashion in the nation of Israel. First of all, it's against the Old Covenant. And second of all, um, I think it's spitting in the face of God because He is the sacrifice. He is sufficient. He is the one and only. He is um, the ultimate culmination of all things. And that's why today when you speak to an Israelite or a Jewish person and you ask them on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, you know, uh, did you bring your lamb today? You know what they'll say? No. Because about 20 years later, um, because after it happened in 70 AD, um, uh, many of the people began slaughtering um, uh, lambs in their homes. But that's prohibited in the um, Old Covenant. Um, so some of the rabbis got up and said, you can't do that. So in 70, around 90 A.D. at the Council of Jamni, I think it was, they figured out that they needed to atone for sins, but they didn't know how. So they changed the code um, to where now with alms and giving and good works, you can come and you can be uh, made right with God. And they do that once a year, you know. Why? Because the temple is still not standing after 2,000 years. Um, why? Because the old covenant is obsolete. Um, and I'm convinced of that. What's the point of it all? See, I don't believe any of that. That's fine. Live for Jesus. <laughs> you know, I believe that the judgment here um, teaches us, whether it's past, present, or future, of that great day of, of meeting God face to face. We're going to talk about what happened, and again, you may not agree with that at all in the coming days, we're going to talk about what happened at 70 AD, and you're going to read one of the most horrific accounts of um, judgment, of war, of terror. And we'll do our best to keep, you know, um, the little one's ears safe. But when you read things like that and you read of not the, 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 the terror, let me tell you this, the terror of all that is not of what happened. And the terror of future prophecy is not what's going to happen. Everybody's worried about America and everybody's worried about the nations and everybody's worried about famine and pestilence and all this. That's not the worry. You know what the worry is? God's coming. That's the worry. That the king of all the ages, as holy and as righteous as he is, will make his presence known. You know, And under that old covenant, without salvation and with preparatory works, Moses trembled. Men would not approach the mountain. And that God is coming. That's the point. Prepare yourselves. 
but by the blessed nature of the new covenant that was prophesied on our behalf, that the blood would be inaugurated on behalf of the nations, not only Israel. Israel would be brought in initially and in future days, but the nations would would enjoy the presence of God in Christ through the blood of His covenant. And that that one day will be the one that you meet. That we're to go out and preach repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because if you don't, one day you'll meet that God. And you better believe that it'll be child's play in eternity compared to what happened in Matthew chapter 24. But for you, brethren, who are in Christ, you will be received as the bride to the bridegroom and in an immeasurable way you will see Him and you will be like Him and you will spend all of eternity serving and honoring the One for whom Christ died. That's the point. He's coming. Are you a part of Christ or are you outside Him? And that's why the great, um, that great um, warning or that great cry, that great plea at the end of Matthew chapter 23, it's, it's not Christ coming and, and laughing and scoffing and mocking um, inherently like he's, he's happy about what's about to happen. No, in verse 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who sent to her, how often I would have gathered you. You know? Like he's not coming with a smile on his face saying that this is inherently something that I take pleasure in. He says for the last um, decades and century after century after century, I have sent you prophet after prophet after prophet. You have heard message after message after message. And how often I would have put you uh, under my wings and offered you protection and loved you like 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 a hen loves her chicks and would even die for them in protection over them. But you killed them all. You know, everyone that I sent to you, Kill them all. I sent my son. And you took his blood on your head. And the same as today, you know, for the religious elites and the Pharisees of the day who sit in religious regalia and carry on. It's the same for the church today. This isn't unique to Israel. It wasn't for that time for the purposes of God. But you know, you read Revelation, you hear the churches, and he says, I know your works, repent, or your light will be taken away from you. You know, your influence will be gone. And that's just a message for us today, church. You know, do you know him? Are you a partaker of the new covenant? Do you rest today in the precious work of Jesus Christ? And on that day, um, it'll be your greatest joy to see him face to face. Or does it scare you today? Are you not terrified that the God who created the heavens and earth with his mouth and brought every nation previous to this low because of their disobedience? And you think you can stand before God when Rome could not, when Assyria could not, when Babylon could not in all of their strength and nor could Israel in all of its religion. Can you stand today before God? The only way you'll stand today before God is in Christ. Do you have him? Is he yours? Have you come to him by faith and repentance? That was the message. John, what's your message? Repent. Jesus, what's your message? Repent. Prophets, what were their message? Repent. Apostles, what were your message in Acts chapter number 2? Repent. What's the message for today, church?
Repent. Repent and walk into the glorious life of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glories that are in Christ. Father, what a journey. What a message. Father, I pray I pleased you. Sometimes I wonder. I wonder because I labor on a lot of days in my own strength. I'm tired. Father, would you renew us? God, as we go to the bread and the cup here in just a moment, Father, would you strengthen our faith? Would you remind us not of the destruction that is to come? May that overwhelm our hearts and souls for those that are outside of Christ perishing. But it may it be our utmost joy to know that we are in Christ, that we are not resting in the old covenant promise or trappings or regalia. We're not trusting in our own works. We're trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Father, we need that. We need today to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. We need to know, Father, that your Son is present among us. We need to know the power of the Spirit, Father. We need you to go with us. Um, Father, we need to... So remind us, Father, of that great new covenant. The one that doesn't rest upon our works, but solely upon the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anybody here, I'm begging you to save them if they're not saved. Father, I'm begging you that you would bring the hearts of those who think that they can reach the heights of heaven with religion. Father, that you would just lay their hearts low, humble them, and show them, Father, their utter depravity and their desperate need of you. And then show them Christ. Father, and show them Christ in all of his beauty and all of his majesty and all of his glory. Father, and extend to their hearts peace, immeasurable and full of glory. And Father, give them the strength and energy to serve you for the rest of their days in whatever capacity that you've called them. Father, this is what we need. We need you. We need you, Father, in all of your terror. And we need you, Father, in all of your beauty and glory and majesty. We need nothing else. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.